You're listening to Paris Talks Marketing. My goal with this podcast is to dig deeper into digital marketing success than any other marketing podcast out there, to reveal the growth marketing strategies and tactics that are working today, empowering growth at amazing companies and organizations. Keep listening as I interview founders, CEOs, and marketing leaders from all around the world, primarily from companies in the tech and software as a service industries. Now, on with the episode. Hi, everybody. Today, I'm with Sharon Bigger, who is the VP of Marketing at Hotjar. And we are in for a real treat because I'm sure many of you know Hotjar. Many of you out there are using Hotjar. So I'm really delighted that we're going to have an inside look into how Hotjar grew and, and became the great success that it is today. Thank you very so much. Sharon, very nice uh, to welcome be here. to the show. Can you yeah. start us off by giving us a bit of an intro? Yeah, sure. So about, as you said, uh, my name is Sharon. Doing? I'm originally from New Zealand, uh, and my my career started really as a as a consultant, um, and then from a consultant, I moved and started, actually uh, opened my own company. Uh, so I think both of those are really interesting from a marketing background. I think both of them actually uh, touch in the marketing space with, without you even knowing that you're doing it. Um, the consultant from the strategy side, as an entrepreneur, you have to be able to pitch your company in 30 seconds. So you're actually doing uh, positioning and messaging without even realizing that you're doing it. Uh, and then from there, when I uh, decided to move on from my, my own company, we sold that. And I actually I moved into mobile gaming. And I was uh, leading an analytics team in a, in a large mobile gaming company. And I went there because uh, just the data that mobile gaming companies has is phenomenal. Uh, so much data and so much information. It was a lot of fun to um, to use that data and try and improve. It was a free-to-play game. So a lot of the um, freemium things that we now deal with in SaaS are highly relevant in that space. Uh, and then moved from the analytics inside that company mm -hmm. to become their chief marketing officer. So it's a very uh, roundabout career path I've had to come to come to marketing. But I think it's actually been yeah. really interesting because it's it's had the marketing side from the from the strategy and running my own company, and then I was lucky enough to be able to complement that with the data side at the mobile gaming company. And then uh, a year and a half ago, I landed mm -hmm. here at Hotjar uh, to lead the marketing. Yeah, so that that pretty much rounded out your your view and your exposure uh, from from the strategy, from doing marketing, probably as an entrepreneur, um, in some ways grassroots yes. and roll up your sleeves uh, type of marketing, to getting a deep dive into analytics, and and then here you are now with Hotjar. Are there any similarities to what how people experience Hotjar? Uh, and what you did in, in your gaming background. And do you think sometimes that Hotjar should be <laughs> almost like a game and fun so that people are delighted Yes, I mean, that's, that's delighted a core with goal that of us, ours is that users are delighted with Hotjar at every step of, of the journey. Uh, but I think in general, SaaS, particularly SaaS that has either a freemium or a free, um, free trial mode, can learn a lot from mobile gaming. Uh, because in mobile gaming, you have a very short amount of time to capture the interest of the of the player before they get bored and they'll move on to something else. 
so, you know, and the retention is, is very different. You lose 50% of your players on day one. So if you don't capture them in that first session or two, uh, they're not coming back. Uh, and so that whole onboarding experience mm-hmm. is uh, very deeply analyzed in mobile gaming. I think we had data from every 10 or 15 seconds that the player was going through the through the onboarding for the first two or three minutes uh, so that we could check those funnels and check where the drop-off mm-hmm. was. And we had very clear metrics as to how many people we wanted to get past the first two minutes of the game. So I think that rigor that gaming has for that, mm-hmm. that early onboarding experience is certainly something um, that you know SAS is doing, but I think can, uh, mobile gaming just has taken it up and not just because of the competitive environment that they are in. Mm-hmm. After doing, after being in that kind of a high-speed, warp-speed marketing environment, does it even seem a little bit slow now to you when you're just in, uh, let's say, a, a trial period that's not make or break in the first yes, it, in minutes it, yeah, the or hours, but slow, in days? But that that time to results is is slow and sometimes yeah. frustrating. You know, at Hotjar, mm-hmm. we have people that that will sign up, that will will stay on our free plan for for months before they decide to upgrade to one of our, our customer plans. Uh, and you know, watching that in the data can be frustrating because <laughs> from coming from gaming where that happened very fast, um, yeah, I have to I've had to learn to be patient and and wait to see those conversion metrics. Yeah. And before we get too far ahead, let's. Can you just tell everybody who may not be aware of Hotjar? <laughs> I, I don't imagine anybody listening hasn't heard of it, but can you just give us a quick overview of yeah, what Hotjar does and what problems yeah, so Hotjar it solves for marketers? Yeah, so Hotjar is a experience insights software, and it's designed for product teams uh, to help them understand what users need. Uh, so it provides a window into that user's experience uh, for product teams that are creating digital products and provides heat maps, session recordings, surveys, so that they can they can see what's happening on the other side of the screen and what users are getting frustrated at, what they're enjoying. Um, so in, it goes a little bit deeper than maybe traditional analytics or Google Analytics, which tells you what's happening. Uh, the aim of Hotjar is really to tell you the why, why users are behaving in that way. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And when people when people see Hotjar, I mean, are you trying are you trying to uh, target a particular problem that they are aware of, or, or do you also think about trying to build awareness around a problem that they don't? Yeah, yet I think most mostly people have? realize they have the problem. They're not necessarily aware that there is a solution uh, out there for it. Uh, so what we find is the product teams that we're targeting, they know that they want to be closer to their audience and closer to their users. Uh, But sometimes what we see is that they're going about it in Mm -hmm. in a more difficult way, in a more manual way. So they might be out there interviewing users um, or they might be trying to combine their their quantitative data and and doing surveys of users and trying to find some way way to bring that together. So it's much more uh, manual, much more difficult solution. And particularly when you're a fast growing company, it's very hard to do all of that at scale. Uh, and that's the problem that's, that Hotjar is really uh, trying to help solve is that you can have this empathy with your users, you can understand their user experience, and you can do that at scale um, and for a growing company. Mm-hmm. 
Great. And th this is a great example of, uh, I believe, successful product-led growth strategy. Would you agree that that is part of the, Absolutely. the marketing yes, that's, strategy? Yes, that's very much how we view growth? it. Uh, we think that the product sells itself. So our job as a marketing team is really to bring people to raise awareness to Hotjar and then bring them to hotjar.com. Uh, our view is, you know, once they see the product, once they get their hands on it, uh, they can very easily self-serve themselves into a free trial uh, or into a subscription if they choose. So that's that's we, we think of it as a flywheel uh, in that sense that, uh, you know, if we're able to bring people uh, to the product, thankfully, uh, the product is so good that people tend to tell their friends about it. And, and it's a nice virtual circle in that sense. Mm hmm. And I'm sure that you're looking for different behavioral signals of, of how people use the product to correlate that with a propensity to yeah. eventually become a customer. How do you approach that side of the analytics um, without revealing any of the secret sauce? What um, how, just generally, how do you approach uh, how do you approach that analytical puzzle of uh, of really trying to figure out how to craft that experience in a way that people are going to get that shrink the time to first value yeah, and it's a great uh, question. maximize so your upsell. We've been doing a lot of work looking at uh, those customers that have the highest lifetime value and are therefore getting the uh, the most value from Hotjar. Uh, and what we've been doing is looking at how is their behavior in the first seven days and the first 28 days different from those who who have a who are churning or have a lower lifetime value? What are they doing that's that's different? Um, and then we're, what we're trying to do is create onboarding experiences that match that higher value um, journey through the product. Uh, so what we're trying to do right now, and you might see some changes coming in the product in the next little while, is tailor it more around the jobs to be done um, from a product team's perspective. So one of the, the learnings that we've had is that the teams that come in with a specific job to be done um, if that if we can help channel them to the right place in the product to solve that problem, uh, then they get they unlock that value quicker. Uh, so we have now you'll see as you come into the product mm -hmm. the choice as to uh, what you're really trying to do, what job that you're trying to solve today, um, and it will do its best to channel you in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what are the say top two or three jobs to be done that? You're seeing that correlates the strongest with Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest LTV. job that a product team has is to prioritize all of the ideas um, that they have and to try and figure out which idea that they have will have the biggest impact on their end users and deliver the most value um, to their end users. So with that in mind, they tend to come to Hotjar in one of two ways. They tend to come in with an idea of something to improve and they're looking to validate the hypothesis that they already have. So they're looking at the recordings to see if, if yes, this is what's happening inside the product. Or uh, they don't have an hypothesis and they're coming into Hotjar to, with, with a, a clear uh, framework and trying to understand where users are struggling or where users are having a great experience um, that they can uh, put into their backlog and prioritize versus the other ideas that they have. So it tends to be one of those two routes that brings them in mm -hmm. to begin with. Okay. And if in looking at the data, are there are there patterns that are related to habitual use? And do those patterns prove out to be 
the the better predictors, or 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 is it more about just somebody that gets into a really killer feature within a certain window of time, or maybe something else that I don't even know? Um, that this is the way I tend to think about patterns, either habitual use, which predicts, so somebody's really just every day spending a certain amount of time, versus uh, features or a sequence yeah. of features. Is it either it, of those or is it maybe it's, something, it's something else? It's closer to the first one. We think of it um, like a loop, uh, that if if we can get somebody in, they can get an insight from Hotjar that they didn't have before. They can then make a change to their product, use Hotjar to check that the change is improving the user's experience, and then they, then they go around that loop again. So they come back in, find another insight, make their change to their product, um, verify that the change is working for the users with Hotjar and keep going around. And and the faster that they can do that loop, the more value that they're delivering to their end users and obviously the more value Hotjar is delivering for mm -hmm. them as well. So that's one of that it's that sort of cycle that we're trying to encourage our customers to um, to get on. Mm -hmm. And what about people that aren't coming in with the with the plan to be persistently always testing and then using the product. So going through that loop, finishing a test and, and then rolling into the next one. I imagine that there are people who have a particular, who really just want to validate something and then make the change and then either take a break or maybe just move on. Do you see a particular turn from customers who come in to solve a problem get that problem solved and then just simply yes, say, Yes, we do. We do see there are, done. we do have some customers, particularly if they're changing their website. Um, so they might come in, use Hotjar to understand mm -hmm. where their website is today, go through a redesign or a rebranding project, um, sometimes with an agency, uh, and use Hotjar to check again that the experience has been fulfilled for their customers. And then they might decide to pause Hotjar for a while. Uh, I have to say that that kind of typical that pattern of usage we're seeing a decline in. I think even what's changing in the industry is uh, as companies grow and as the market is becoming more demanding, even the websites that might have been owned by marketing teams in the past, today are moving into product ownership with obviously a lot of marketing collaboration involved and, and usually with product marketers deeply embedded into those product teams. But uh, we're seeing more and more product teams owning the, the marketing website. And once a product team owns it in that way, um, they are more interested in ongoing optimizations and ongoing improvements uh, to, the, to those marketing websites. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Are there any particular types of businesses or industries where you feel that you all I are think particularly the two well suited that, for? At least the two biggest industries that we see in our customer base are e-commerce, uh, where the website is the front of the store. So it's it's natural that they really want that to be a great digital experience and also SaaS uh, for the same reason. Um, so those are the two biggest industries we have, e-commerce and SaaS. Mm -hmm. And in terms of acquisitions, um, what generally what's, what's this, the ratio between organic efforts to acquire organically through SEO, content marketing, for example, versus direct uh, We're very lucky. I, I don't know the, the number off the top of my head, but it's predominantly organic acquisition that's happening. Um, 
thankfully, we have a very large content portfolio that we have been building up over time and, and continue to invest in. Uh, and that is really helping us to drive traffic mm-hmm. to our website. Um, that being said, we do invest quite significantly in paid. And one of our hypotheses is that uh, actually our investments in paid help uh, the organic traffic that's coming to the website. So we see a strong correlation uh, between when we invest in paid and actually uplifts in organic traffic to hotjar.com. Uh, and I guess that's not surprising because people may not necessarily click directly on the ad um, and they or, or they see the ad, mm. but then maybe see something else and then come to, to the website. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. And I have to say, we've seen, we've seen a lot of evidence of that too, which is not always very, yeah. the attribution is, is fuzzy. But I uh, specifically with Facebook, but also YouTube, which are more either top or middle funnel, uh, create a lot of awareness. We see that that drives a lot of branded search, and that branded search, um, then you know part of that goes to organic. But I think maybe that's what you're describing as well is just the that that awareness boost that's created from those ads, whether or not they're either watching a videos to completion or even clicking through. They're still observing and being reminded of the brand and maybe reminded of the problem that they had, that they had meant to get back to. And um, then they go and search for the brand. And so then you get the, the you get that organic branded. Are yes, you referring to mostly exactly. brand, branded yeah, organic, organic branded that gets that yeah, lift? Exactly okay. as you describe. Mm-hmm. And we see it, uh, particularly for us, it's on Twitter and Facebook. If we advertise on those platforms, we might not necessarily mm. see the the direct attribution to those platforms, but we certainly see an uplift across the board and predominantly in branded search. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's stay on this attribution topic for a second, because I think it is one of the yes, biggest pain points, and it has been one of the most challenging aspects of digital marketing for many years. How do you all tackle the problem of so uh, I think probably not in a, any different way to how anybody else is is, cha- is tackling it. We we struggle with this as well. Um, you know, we we do the same things. I'm sure many people do uh, using the the UTM uh, parameters to understand where it's coming from. Uh, but one of our big challenges is is like I'm sure many people have a, a big proportion of our traffic we can't attribute uh, either they've chosen not to accept our cookies or they themselves have chosen not to have ad tracking. Uh, so, you know, we're left with um, a propor- only a proportion of our traffic that we can actually attribute uh, to a channel. So we are using multi-touch mm-hmm. attribution, which at least we think hopefully um, lessens the, the issues of maybe they see one or two ad or a blog before they come to this, this site. But I agree with you. It's still very fuzzy. It's still, um, it's not precise mm. in a way that would make it easier to deal with. So I think there's there's a lot of data helps, but you have to overlay your own logic uh, onto that data. Mm-hmm. And I think unfortunately yeah. it won't it won't get easier in the near term with the changes happening. With, especially with the iOS the update, yes. which just went live, was that yesterday maybe or two days ago? So um, I think that problem is going to get harder before it gets easier. But it eventually, it's um, 
there, there's going to be clarity there. And actually, I think that just opens up more of a need yes, I agree. for the mindset of testing. So you can still, you, you can still try to, you know, in a way, piece together that puzzle by, let's say, doing a, a lift or a holdout test on Facebook, or maybe, you know, maybe freezing a certain country just to see, you know, how how things behave in an isolated environment. So there's there's certainly other options to um, to try to get some clues yes, and I, make some some common sense decisions, and uh, and that's going to be there's yes, going to be I more of a need for that now I than ever before. One of the mistakes I see happen is people look for certainty with the data. They think data-driven decision-making means the data actually decides for you. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. In this attribution space, it's it's not a perfect science in that way. Uh, so one of the things we do, in addition to the, the couple of ideas that you had, is we tend to take a more holistic approach. So we'll look to see if we do if we do a big bold move, has it actually lifted the, the needle across the across the board? Um, and so are we seeing that that level of correlation? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I love your ideas, and we've done the same thing of just stopping a country or stopping some things in a country and seeing what happens, uh, and that gives you an indication at least as mm-hmm. to what's working and what's not. Yeah. Yeah. It does shed some light on the journey itself too. And I imagine that the journey for, for a tool like Hotjar is not simply a, uh, a last click dominated type of a journey. I believe that there is quite a lot of research that probably goes in and people are going to touch um, or organically. They're going to touch blog content. They yes, might even they go onto the review sites and look at reviews Um and, and be exposed, there might be a lot of a non-click impression-based exposure that somehow influences, and it's a, it's, a complex, it's a complex journey. And I think rather than, as you said, trying to be exactly precise and look for certainty, um, use common sense and know that you should be everywhere, really, um, because you don't want to miss an opportunity when someone is in a moment where they could be influenced and, and you could you can nudge them down a little further down that path. So um, I, I do think still I, multi-channel I is, is essential. Um, and that's certainly um, the approach that, that we have taken. I would be remiss if I, I didn't say the other thing we do is we also use Hotjar to understand where our traffic is. Um, so in fact, we we have Hotjar running on our own mm-hmm. hotjar.com site. Um, and in that, we actually ask, after mm-hmm. a customer signs up, we actually ask them, to help us identify how they heard about Hotjar. So that we, you, you might see a little pop-up if you sign up to Hotjar asking mm-hmm. you, you know, where did you learn about Hotjar? Um, and that that's another way, that sort of qualitative feedback that we're getting from the customers, we're combining with that more quantitative attribution data to have a, a sense of, you know, we can't be everywhere, everywhere. We do have to choose some channels. And when we're trying to decide between this channel or that channel, it yeah. helps us make those decisions. Mm-hmm. And during that sign-up flow or that conversion, the conversion funnel itself, is there any data that you're able to capture from those prospects as as they actually get closer to completing that conversion? Is there any data that allows you to segment them for remarketing campaigns if they don't uh, get to the finish we're line? We're trying very hard to reduce friction in our sign-up flow. So we're actually trying to reduce the uh, the number of steps. Uh, that a that a user or a customer has to go through in the sign up flow. 
Um, but what we what we do once somebody does sign up and you know uh, understands our privacy and um, terms and conditions, then we are able to remarket to to their email address for the purposes of helping them to complete their onboarding experience with Hotjar. We wouldn't use it for any other purpose. Uh, so we are using mm -hmm. that as a way to help customers who might not complete their onboarding um, to reach out to them to understand what they're having trouble with or what we might be able to help with. Okay. So this, what you're referring to is post, post sign up, but people who don't, exactly. who don't complete the onboarding experience. What about pre-sign up, but people who already get into that flow and for whatever reason, they don't, they don't actually yeah, finish. They don't complete the sign Google up. They were using Google to help us. Um, so um, Google with its, its cookies and its data uh, is able to tell us who's been on the site in the last mm -hmm. one. Usually we use 90 days, um, but hasn't completed a sign up event. So uh, we're using their data to remarket to those individuals. Mm-hmm. And is there any particular segmentation of that audience, which I imagine is a rather large audience, either time-based segmentation or some other form that allows you to customize those ads a little bit? Yeah, we're very early in our marketing experience. So we haven't yet gone down to that level of detail. I think that's the next step for us. Uh, and it's a very exciting next step for us to, to mm -hmm. target those remarketing ads um, in a better way. Yeah. I, I would imagine even knowing for those people who who bail out pre-sign up, if you could know at least if they're e-commerce versus SaaS so that you could tailor those remarketing ads. If exactly. I'm SaaS, I really wouldn't respond to an e-commerce remarketing ad and vice versa. But even knowing that, if these are your two major ICPs, um, that would be, a, would be a great first step. But of course, you have yes. to weigh that against that added friction by trying to extract that information. So asking them the question, are you A or are you B or are you C other, um, you're going to sacrifice a bit of, uh, um, you, you're going to shrink the size of the audience uh, and, and you'll there's that cost side, but you'll have to weigh that against the benefit of the better remarketing. Uh, the more, the, more um, the, the richer creatives that you can show, the more relevant creatives. But what I will say is that we just tested this with, with one of our large B2C SaaS clients. And actually, we asked a couple of questions about, um, we asked two particular questions related to a person's level of experience so that we can generally slot them as a beginner, an intermediate, or an advanced level. And then another aspect about um, like a, a particular preference for how they would be using that. It was essentially two questions. And we postponed that literally for over a year because everybody thought this is just going to kill our conversion rate. If we add friction, it, the cost that we're going to pay is too great for the, for the added benefit on the remarketing side. And guess what? After literally two days, and, and this, is, this gap is closing, um, the conversion rate without those two questions, once people got into the flow, was 18%. Once wow. we added those, it went down to 17%. And actually because it's been only two days, the gap is closing. What we're realizing is actually we were wrong. And users who feel that their experience is being customized and that they're actually going to benefit from that, they were looks like they're happy to provide that information freely and they're, and they're not dropping That's, out. Uh, yeah. So that was a major learning. And I That's would encourage experience. you to test that and mm -hmm. not um, yeah. 
not not going yes, with a bias because we were all very surprised. And in fact, probably we lost a year <laughs> uh, just because everybody everybody just assumed. Yeah, no, that's no and you're absolutely right. We certainly have work. that bias ourselves, and uh, we do believe we we hypothesize, I should say, because we don't know. We haven't run that experiment that you're talking about, but we hypothesize that adding in the friction would reduce the conversion rate. So we haven't done it. In fact, we're going in the opposite direction. Uh, so it's it's really interesting to hear that learning. We should uh, mm-hmm. consider it for sure. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's pivot over to the organic side now a little bit because I'm very curious. You you mentioned the the bulk of uh, the acquisitions is really coming from organic because you have laid that foundation over years with great content, and I know this because I I've been exposed to that content quite a lot over the years. And can you tell me a little bit about what goes into that effort? How do you maintain that that kind of rigorous yes. content? editorial calendar it's it's very and, and tough what, what's behind um, the scenes because we actually have very high quality standards on the content that we produce um which makes it a, a continual debate because our preference would be to only have people inside hotjar write their content um because we believe that they they know the product so well that they have the quality that we're looking for uh, and then it's a, a challenging decision between if we do that, of course, the amount of content that we can produce and publish is lower versus if we can go out to freelancers or agencies to help us to write that content, uh, then we can have a greater volume of content and reaching uh, more interest for our users. So there's always this, this natural tension that goes on between those two. So what we've been working on, I would say, over the last six months is how do we help our external writers uh, to have the same level of product knowledge and inside knowledge that our, our inside content team does so that there isn't this um, difference in quality uh, between the two. So it's um, it, it starts, we've, we've really worked hard on the figuring out how to brief writers correctly, how to recruit them into, into the process um, correctly. So they all go through a testing phase before we're willing to let them loose on, on a piece of content. Uh, and then how to edit them and how to maintain that high quality at the same time as training them uh, so so they are getting that inside knowledge into the product so that their quality is at the same level as our internal writers. So yes, it's quite a it's quite a factory in some ways. I don't like to use that word as obviously a digital environment, but it is it's a it's a machine uh, that we need to keep well oiled and well processed in order to be able to keep the quality but also the quantity that we want. Mm-hmm. Do you ever revisit old blog posts based on um, what you see as the potential to uh, to reinvigorate them, really uh, update them, refresh them, and and how how do you look at that process of uh, yes, we refurbishing old content? Yeah, we versus maybe do. de-indexing have, it. Um, our, our SEO strategists spend a significant amount of time looking at the data. Uh, and they have they have a portfolio approach to writing new content as well as optimizing old content. Uh, so within a given month, there'll always be new content coming coming out, but also content that we'll be going back to and optimizing. I should say we also have a list of of keywords that for strategic reasons, um, which is a little bit outside of SEO reasons per se, but for company strategic reasons, we believe Hotjar should rank very highly for. 
Um, and so we are constantly monitoring that set of keywords to make sure that we are number one or number two. Um, and if we ever see those drop below that, then we will be actively optimizing the content around those keywords to make sure that we continue to rank highly um, for those words. Mm -hmm. And I have also noticed a, yes. a lot of effort going into yes, case studies. Yes, I think, studies. you know, Hotchart still, you know, one of the things that we're, we're conscious of is even though we, we think we're well known, but we're a little bit in the inside circle, uh, there's still a lot of people out there that aren't aware of Hotjar. Um, and we find that's true, particularly in the US. In Europe, we're, we're better known, but in the US, we're less well known. Um, and so obviously, case studies certainly help with that, with the social proof, as well as allowing customers to see how other customers are getting value out of Hotjar. Mm -hmm. Is there anyone at Hotjar who is really tasked with trying to extract those wins and those success stories from the current customers in order to use that to create content? We don't have a specific person, um, but we do have a whole team. Our, our customer marketing team is, is constantly involved with uh, post, once, once someone has subscribed to Hotjar, helping educate those customers and understanding how they're using the product as well as getting feedback from them. So just in their natural day-to-day -day work, they're in touch with with both the things that are mm. that are going well, but also the things that are going badly. So that's really helpful in terms of um, both feeding back to the product to fix the things that are not going so well, but also for those that have had a big win. Uh, you know, there's a natural natural loop there to be able to just step into a case study. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, I imagine that could be a treasure trove of content maybe even just micro stories and little wins that people get um, and little insights that, oh, Hotjar allowed me to see something that was, it was obvious, but I was missing it. And uh, and we made this change and this happened and um, they don't necessarily need in to become full-blown case studies, but it just yeah, you great, raise an great stories that can be told. Because one of the challenges we have is that actually our audience don't necessarily want to read long-form content. So we have a lot of 2,000 or more uh, blogs that are 2,000 words in length. Um, but very few people, I know I don't, have time to read blogs that are that long anymore. Uh, in fact, you see more and more content moving to mm -hmm. videos or uh, you know, infographics or other forms of content. Uh, so one of our challenges is how do you balance that with Google's need for long-form content when it's in its ranking algorithms, which are this mm -hmm. black box that we all have to try and guess what's inside there. But but the rumors are that it values and favors long-form mm -hmm. content. So it's a bit of a challenging mix because if that's not what our audience yeah. wants, but it is what Google wants, uh, you know, we have to try and um, figure that one out. So, yes. Accommodate both, yeah. Yeah, I can say one of the ways we're trying to to approach that and before I describe it, I I find it kind of ironic and it's a little bit disturbing that I, I agree exactly with what you said. Yeah. But it can't persist this way for too long. Users are not users are the patience and the attention span keeps shrinking and shrinking. Users are not as apt to, to want to sit down and spend 10 or 15 minutes to really get into a 2000 word article. They typically um, they want to grab a nugget and grab it and go and, and then move on to the next thing. And short videos now seem to be the most snackable type of content that satisfies that. But yet Google seems to still be 
powered by this long form content. And I just find that ironic and probably unsustainable. Um, what we're trying to do is to create short form content for the users, which can be repurposed into the long form content that satisfies Google. And an example of that would be a two minute video that covers at a high level, a particular strategy, and then trying to repurpose that into, into a blog post. Uh, it doesn't always work though, um, but in some cases it, it does. And I imagine if you, Think about the case study format. If you could shrink that down into a micro win or a micro learning, which is just something like, hey, this here's a here's a B2B SaaS company in the LMS space. And they made this quick change and voila, they they were able to increase their conversion rate by 50%. Um, that could be a nugget and that could be delivered through a video and, and maybe repurposed or maybe not. But um, I imagine that those aha moments happen uh, maybe hundreds of times a day inside of your product. Um, yes. And it could be I think that's, that's a great idea. And I think like that's nuggets. the direction mm -hmm. we'll, we'll start to take our content. And I agree with you. I don't think Google can last um, much longer with this favoring long form content. I think it, 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 we all need to move to what the user wants. Uh, and I think they'll come along at some point. Yeah. What I have started noticing is that Google is now getting good at actually trying to provide yes. the answer that lives inside of a video in the search results. And it can even give you these. Um, yeah, it tells you where to go. What are they, it's little bookmarks, cool. I guess? Yeah, it's really neat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, somebody had even asked, somebody pointed out one of our videos that showed up in a search result that had that. And I had never seen that before. And I was, I was amazed. And, and the person asked, well, how did you all do that? And said, I have no idea. Yeah, we didn't do that. And that's so cool. But the Google just found the answer by, I guess, listening. Of course, natural language processing, they've been able to do that for a while. But they were able to hone in on exactly the, the little five-second segment that provided that answer and fast-forward the user in the search it's result. It's very impressive, right the, isn't it? It's very amazing segment. when you consider that Pretty indexing amazing. however many yeah. trillions of pages. Yeah. So maybe there's maybe there's a second life for all of our webinars now. <laughs> if that starts happening, um, yeah, because even webinars are getting a little bit, I think, a little bit crusty because of that same reason. Not not everybody wants to sit through an hour long webinar anymore. And if I can get in and really get great value in 10, 15 minutes, I'd, maybe yes, I prefer it's, that. It's um, something ironic in the data, isn't it? Since the pandemic started, I mean, I think mm -hmm. all the surveys are showing more and more of us are spending greater amount of time online than we did before the pandemic. And yet our patience to sit through something like an hour long webinar is decreasing. So. Yeah. <laughs> are we just are we just trying to be two so. or three times more productive now than we were before? Or I don't know. Or just, yeah, we just we just want to get more efficient at, at how we how we consume and get get the value and then just move, move on. Uh, I have to admit, I sense that in myself too. Um, that if, if I get attracted by something, I'm, I'm really hunting in a way for the value. And when I feel like I've got it, I could even be you know, on the second or third paragraph. No, but if I, I feel like I I've got see it, the same thing in behavior myself. And if I jump onto medium and see that the article is going to take mm. 10, 15 minutes, I'm like, Oh, I don't have time for this. <laughs> and I'll, I'll jump off again. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Yes. We'll, we'll enter Hotjar's heat maps and could certainly analyze your blog content and see, um, you know, g- generally those heat maps are going to show you that attention span right. and, uh, in full color. Yeah. Well, this is, this has been great, Sharon. I really appreciate you sharing some of these great insights. Um, it's a phenomenal product. Before we wrap up, do you have any really big picture goals that if you project out six months or 12 months out, you know, where are you trying to go with Hotjar? And, yes, and what does the future uh, sure. of the product so the, look like? The big goals we are working on today is actually we are in the process of rebranding Hotjar, which is a, a super fun project. And I'm looking very much looking forward to, to releasing oh, it uh, to the public when, when that time comes. Uh, and And we're trying to take a very user-driven approach to this rebranding. So it's been a very fascinating project from day one because, uh, you know, we very much believe in user-driven product development and user-driven marketing. Uh, And we've been contacting agencies to help us with our rebranding and design agencies. And it's surprising for me how few agencies uh, are actually user-driven in their rebranding. So we had... Proposals back maybe from six or seven, mm-hmm. and yet I think only one of them suggested taking their ideas for the rebrand actually out to potential customers to see how they would respond to it. Uh, and for us, that was a that was an eye opener because everything mm-hmm. we do, we take the that's our DNA. We go to the wow. potential yeah, customers that's your DNA. and say, "Is this even in our positioning work? We're out there testing. Does this copy work better than that copy?" In our messaging, we're doing the same thing. Um, and then, you know, we had agencies, uh, some of whom were at phenomenal sums of money. And when you ask them, okay, you're going to present us with two different logos and brand, you know, visual brand um, kits. Yeah, you know, how, how are we going to choose between them? And they say, oh, well, you know, we present them and you choose. Like, but we're not our customer. <laughs> you know, we can give you our subjective view, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we think. What matters is how the potential customers um, respond to it. So I think this has been a big learning for us that the the branded side of, of marketing is so, so important, but it needs to be grounded in, in data in a way that it hasn't been up until now. Um and I think this is a big change that you'll start to see happen in the marketing industry in a few over the next years or so. Yeah. Please We're not just promise me name. that the name is no, not going to change. We love that name. Okay, good. Yeah, I think it's uh, for me it's iconic, and uh, yeah, I would I would be sad. Uh, I I agree with you. I actually had um, a bit of a personal experience to get inside and run uh, one of these brand creative agencies. And actually, to try to pivot it more towards performance, and I fully agree that th- there are still really there is still uh, really an older world view, um, which is driven. The creatives in that space are driven a lot more, um, really, by, by the creative energy that they get themselves from their work. And I think that's a that's a great thing. Yes, um, that's what drives these people a lot of times. That, that's connected with winning awards, and um, and just notoriety. And the personal the personal satisfaction that you get from your own creation, but it is very much about you, the creator, and it's not really audience or user focused. And I think that's where performance marketing is introducing and performance creative is is flipping that on its head, and and trying to to tell these people that actually, I'm sorry, but your opinions or even your your resume doesn't 
matter that much anymore because we, if we can test, we will test and we're going to let our users yes. tell us what they prefer. And, and this is not a, a one once in a lifetime, uh, 30 second Super Bowl TV spot that we have to get right. No, we can actually launch a, a or B or a C version and try to get some insights before yes. we actually decide what we're going to go with. Um, it's a different, it's a very different mindset. Yeah, it's a very I can, different mindset. It's exactly surprising how ingrained it is. Like, you know, even even that many of the agencies we're talking to are, are saying things like, "Well, of course we'll need your CEO on the call to make the decision between logo A or logo B," and we're like, "He's going to want to look at the data and see what what the users, uh, how they're reacting." But it, so it's, mm-hmm. I think there's there's this a change that's going on. Uh, more broadly than marketing, but I think brand marketing has just been a little bit step behind. And and as you say, performance marketing has, by its nature, mm-hmm. been forced to move into this into this world where it uses data to make decisions. I think brand has, yeah. in some ways, tried to stay away from that. Um, and in some ways, fit, I get the sense that maybe they even think there's a stigma of using data to drive decisions. That brand is somehow more creative, more um, Innovative, and you don't, yes, um, Sacred, magical maybe. in some ways. Yeah. You don't want to taint yeah. it with analytics right, and right. data, but uh, I think that just, I think we have to be humble and recognize that we don't know what our customers are going to respond well to, and, and the best thing we can do is ask them. Mm-hmm. I remember a conversation that I had with a creative director at, uh, at a big brand agency recently. And I remember him saying something along the lines of, please don't make <laughs> me spoil this with the CTA button. <laughs> he was so against it. And I, and I was like, mm-hmm. well, that's the whole point. I mean, we have to, we want them to take an action after this. And he thought he he saw that yes. as as ruining yes. his masterpiece. I think that's, if, if I have a personal crusade, it, it is that it's uh you know, performance marketers understand the need for brand marketers and understand the need to invest in brand marketing and performance marketing. But there still today are some brand marketers who don't think performance marketing is needed and that, in fact, you can just run your your entire marketing budget with brand marketing uh, and that somehow performance marketing is a lesser mm-hmm. skill or a lesser craft Um I think my personal crusade is to say, no, it's absolutely essential. You have both brand marketing and performance marketing, and they need to work very well together. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, this has been great, Sharon. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted me to ask you or that you would like for our audience to no, know? No, I think, I think we covered everything. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Same here. And thanks, thanks for spending the time with me. I really appreciate it. Good luck with the journey ahead with Hotjar, the rebranding, and the continued growth. Uh, it's it's an amazing product, and I imagine well, it's going to continue getting better. So, thank you so uh, much thanks for, for sharing me. all these great insights today. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop. Be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about SaaS growth marketing, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P, dot online. Have a great day.